chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 11 through 28 in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. You continue hearing God's true and inspired word. But Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength. At all, while the testator live, liveth, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Amen. May God bless the reading and the further preaching of his own word. Dear congregation, um, as we focus 
again in Hebrews chapter 9, in this whole portion, and especially verse 28 is the main theme, the main text in this sermon. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And this verse comes in a portion where where the author of Hebrews is speaking of this New Testament. And he uses the word testament as we would even use the word will, like the last will that someone leaves in explaining where the inheritance is to be um, distributed. Well, history bears record of the last will and testament of Julius Caesar, the emperor of Rome. He left every Roman citizen two and a half months of wages. And you can imagine how the people rejoiced in this um, generous gift that was the last will of Caesar to the people of Rome. But scriptures bears record of what literally is the most generous, the most selfless, the greatest inheritance ever left. It is the forgiveness of sins. It is summarized as the forgiveness of sins, which means the freedom from the condemnation of sin, and therefore everlasting life. That's the inheritance that Jesus leaves behind. It was approved by the Father. It was to all of them whom the Father chose from eternity past. It is to all of those who come to Him by faith. In Christ, in Caesar's death, there were treasures that were won by the people. And in Christ's death, there is the greatest treasure that is won by those who believe. The treasures from Caesar's inheritance, they were all temporal. They were all in the past. They're gone. But the treasures from Christ's testament are eternal. They're for the present, and they will be forever. When we talk about testaments, we're talking about possessions. We're talking about investments and, and properties and treasures that someone would have. He calls for people to witness and to write it down in a documented way that would be respected by law. But those documents mean nothing, in a sense, until the person dies. That's exactly what the author of Hebrew was meaning in verse 15 when he says, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And it spoke earlier that if the testator is alive... Well, then none of those things are in effect. But the moment he dies, then all of that flows through. 
And this is what he's speaking of, putting, putting the riches of Christ as an inheritance that he offers. And if you were with us last Lord's Day, um, in preparation for the Lord's Supper today, we looked at one more figure of forgiveness, of the many figures that we've been looking at. And we, we saw the figure that really is mostly connected to, to the very definition of forgiveness itself. It is the figure that is most used in both the Old and the New Testament, that of carrying away of sins, of letting sin go, of putting it off, putting it aside, throwing it away. And we, we see that in all those figures, God is showing, He wants us to know His great willingness to forgive. He, he, he wants us not to miss this point. He gives us numerous pictures, illustrations. There's a meaning for all of them. He wants us to understand that He does not have pleasure in judging sinners, but that He delights in forgiving them. And we emphasized the figure. Today, we want to emphasize something that we did mention because we can't mention this blessedness without this one reality of today. But today's whole sermon will be this whole emphasis. Where do these sins go? See, we we need to understand these two crucial things regarding forgiveness and this figure of sins being carried away. They don't just go away. The picture of sins being cast into the depths of the sea. And boys and girls, this is where it's very important that you are attuned to this. doesn't mean that when you go to the depths of the seas, you will find a lot of sin. It doesn't mean that they are literally there. This is why it's just a picture. It's not the essence. But some people might think, well, okay, if the sins are are carried away behind the back of God, we saw, and as far as the east is from the west, there might be in some people's mind the figure that sins are just all floating somewhere far away in that wilderness where the goat goes and no one probably sees it again, but it's there somewhere. No. And this is what Hebrews 9 makes so very clear. There is a sin bearer. There is one who bore it. And then the second thing that's important to know is that God does desire you to know who that is. It's not a mystery. It's not, it's not just a guess. It is not just a hope. It is, it is an obvious, it is a certain thing. And so that's why our first point is who bore your sins And then secondly, for whom were they born? Who bore your sins? In many ways, there are only two possibilities of where sin is being born or was born. In the Old Testament, um, if you think of the whole sacrificial system, if there was something that stuck in the minds of the people, was the reality that sin was born by those animals. That was the picture laid out to them. See, God was already teaching sin has to go away, but it doesn't just go away. It has to be upon something. And then that something will bear the punishment of that sin so that that sin, in terms of a record, in terms of a blemish, in terms of, a, of, a, of like rubbish that needs to be carried away, it would be dealt with. It would be done. So it's not 
hidden under some rock. It is not there behind um, a tree. No, it is done with. And those little animals were figures showing that. They, they would bear the sin and then they would die. And that fire that would consume the animal would be God showing, it is done. I, I see sin upon this animal. My wrath is upon it. My wrath is satisfied. I will not see the sin any longer in this family, in this little boy. If this little boy lied in the home and told the dad, and the dad came and brought the lamb and, and placed that sin upon that animal in this ceremonial way, in this figurative way, and yet before the Lord, it was a legal way well, that little boy could go home with the comfort, my lie, that I confessed to my dad, that dad imposed upon that poor little victim lamb. It's done. See, it went away, but it went on something. And of course, it was communicating to those families that it's not going to always be this way. It's not, they, they don't really have the power. These animals, the bulls and the ox and the goats, they don't have the power to really make this effective. This is, this is a temporary picture. And it was all pointing, of course, to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament was pointing that Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb. And that, that's why that declaration that John the Baptist does or says when he sees the Lord Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. They all understood that vocabulary. All the fathers there immediately saw it very personally because they would be the ones charged into putting the hand upon the little lamb or goats or any animals that they would bring from time to time. They would see the priests doing that, representing all the people. And, and, and they all understood what that meant. Sins were being placed. There was a sin bearer. And John the Baptist was saying, the Lamb of God. God as a father had sent a lamb that would be the one who would bear the sins of many. Um, that's who Jesus is. He is the sin bearer. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. He, he was the one carrying sins and taking them. He was the one who had them upon himself in his very bosom. And Jesus at the supper was declaring exactly that, especially when he gave his cup, the cup, and he passed it around and he said that it was the blood of the New Testament for the remission of sins. See, remember, that's the key word, right? Remission of sins for the going away of sins. So in their minds, they're understanding, okay, sins are going to go, but they need to go upon someone. And Jesus was right there saying, this is the blood of the New Testament. It is my blood. He had passed the bread and said, it is my body. The communication couldn't be more clear, for, especially for someone who understood the sacrificial system and all that it meant. If any of them had heard and remembered those words of John the Baptist, that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they could see right there, Jesus is saying that He's going to die. He will be a lamb. He will be like a goat, like one of the oxen on the altar. And our sins will be put upon Him. That's how they will be remitted. That's how they will go away. 
That's what was being communicated. Now, we can look at three proofs that Jesus bore our sins. Um, it's, it's, I know that it's not that we need them. I, I do trust that you believe in it, that, that it is common sense to you as a believer. But it certainly strengthens our faith. And for those who are still not believers, this is what is used of God so that you would see in Him your only hope and help. The first proof is Scripture itself, of course, even from the Old Testament. The, the most critical passages that spoke of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah being one who would bear sins, is in Isaiah 53. And several times there, look at three times, Isaiah 53, 6. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. See the father figure laying upon this servant, who would be the Lamb of God, the sins, the iniquity of us all, Isaiah says. And, and that was the bearing of sins upon the Messiah. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53, For he shall bear their iniquity. And then verse 12, He bear the sin of many. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we find that vocabulary. Peter, in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 24, says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. See, Peter is referencing Isaiah 53. In his own self bear our sins. And then Paul uses this same vocabulary in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Speaking of God, he made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. That, that shows the, the degree to which Jesus bore sin that he was even called by Paul, that, 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 that he was made sin for us, even though he had no sin of his own. So, of course, the first proof is Scripture. The second proof that Jesus bore the sins of many is in his death itself. Because since Jesus was pure and holy and had no sins of his own, he would have never died. Death would never have a grasp upon him. It would never hurt him. Death would be powerless over Jesus. But he died. And the only thing that can explain that he died is the sins that he bore. He died because of the sins of others, not his own. And then the third proof is what we find here in the text, which is the result of the death of Christ. What did the death of Christ result? It had a result in regards to the sins of others. And, and it proves that he had sins upon him. Um, if you look at verse 26, it says, For then, so chapter 9 of Hebrews 26, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end. And this phrase can be translated once for all. See, once Jesus died that once, and look what happened. 
in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin there was a finality to it we don't need another sacrifice we don't need jesus dying again and again that once was for all and what did it do it put away sin remember put away sin is part of this whole figure that we're looking at where sin goes see sin went on him and because he died it went away and, and now we have the idea of sin going away in a way that it's not just hidden. It's not under a rock. It's not in some cosmic um, um, location. No, it was put away. It was erased. But because he bore it. See, it doesn't go away and stay there. It had to be on him. And then it was put away. And there's a finality and there's an efficacious reality to this. It says to put away sin he did it 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 is not here just something they hope for it is not something that that we we, we're still looking for no it happened and so jesus is the one who bears sins but my question to you is who bore your sins see we need to understand this one reality the only alternative to christ bearing your sins is for your sins to remain upon you so that you are bearing them. But this alternative, when I say it's an alternative, I don't mean it's in any way good. This alternative offers no forgiveness. In terms of forgiveness, there's only one option. Christ bearing sins for you. If you don't trust Him, to carry your sins then you will have to carry your sins and because you are finite you will never satisfy for the sins that you have committed against an infinite God punishment in hell never ends it's eternal Those who go to hell never finish paying their debt because they have sinned against an eternal God and they must pay eternally. And hell is not like a purgatory idea that you are paying for your sins and one day it will happen. Because in hell there's not anyone with a heart of contrition we never hear of faith in hell we never hear of repentance in hell we hear of tears and we hear of groans and of teeth grinding there is anger in hell but not faith there is anguish but never repentance Sin remains. And in essence, it never goes away. The weight is always there. But this is why this message that I bring to you is so very precious. It is priceless. It's an inheritance that every soul needs. How can you have it? So in our second point, for whom were 
they born, for whom were the sins that Jesus born bore upon him. Who did he bear sins for? Who can claim such a blessing? Whose is this blessed inheritance? We would all love to, it would all help. It would help everybody to have an inheritance. And, and the human heart seeks after that. Why are so many hearts, literally millions of people, there may have been millions of people who have heard this very gospel, but who have rejected the means by which they can receive this inheritance. Our text tells us very clearly who those are. And it's a beautiful expression. It's, it's an expression that, that communicates what faith is, but it doesn't use the word faith. And we find it in verse um, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time. It is them who look for Him. Um, The author of Hebrews is literally saying, these are the ones for whom Jesus bore sins. They are people who look for Him. They are people who yearn for His return. They are people who long for Jesus. They are people who add the prayers of the church with the Spirit, saying, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Matthew Henry says this about this little phrase, It is the distinguishing character of true believers, that they are looking for Christ. They look to Him by faith. They look for Him by hope. And holy desires. They look for him in every duty, in every ordinance, in every providence now, and they expect his second coming and are preparing for it. And though it will be sudden destruction to the rest of the world who scoff at the report of it, it will be eternal salvation to those who look for it. And you notice in Matthew Henry's um, explanation, this looking for it, it's not just looking for his coming, and meanwhile, you just live in many ways irresponsive, irrespective of his coming. No, you're, you're looking for Jesus in everything you do, and you are yearning for Jesus. So you pick up your Bible because you want to hear of Jesus and commune with the Father through Jesus. And you come to church because it's in church that you hear of Jesus. And you want to talk to believers because if they believe in Jesus and you believe in Jesus, there's, there's something of the communion of Christ in that fellowship in that communion and you are looking for Jesus you're looking for Jesus in your life because you want to be more like Jesus and you're looking for Jesus in your friends and in your family and you pray for them that they would look more like Jesus and so the question is does that describe you are you someone who looks for Jesus who yearns for him who can't wait to hear more of him and this is where sermons come in, beloved, where, where we should be immersed with sermons and the Word of God on the Lord's Day and throughout the week. And never think of it as, oh, that's too much. And this is where we should, should, we should invest and put it in our calendars. If you hear of a good conference where the Word of God will be proclaimed once a year or so or more, Make it part of your family vacation. Make it where you're going to be there. We're going to be immersed in the Word of God. 
Because that's who a Christian is. A Christian is one who looks for him who shall appear the second time. And that's who Jesus bore sins for. He bore the sins of believers. And so, of course, the text is saying and and, and pressing your heart. If If you're not a believer, you must be. It's the only way you can be certain that he bore your sins. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no idea. The the reason I say this, of course, if you're an elect, well, then it means that he bore your sins. You just don't know it yet, and you're you're not being blessed with that reality. But, But see, until you are saved... It is possible that those sins are upon you. And, and, but, but if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be certain that they're not. You will be certain that Jesus bore your sins on His death. And you must believe for that to be a reality in your concept. It is not faith that will make your sins go there and be upon Him. It is God's electing grace that did that but what is put before you is to to be in that category of one who looks for him and that is faith of course we could add it is faith and repentance because the scripture gives a couple example I want to give of blessed souls who heard from the very lips of Jesus where they were comforted with the thought, if I'm forgiven, he bore my sins or he will bear my sins. It was during the life of Jesus. He was burying them as he was already a man of sorrows and would bear the sins of these very people that we will talk about when he finally died on the cross. I'm thinking of the man who was sick of the palsy. Remember, beloved, how those friends who had so much faith, even that man who was paralyzed had so much faith, they wanted to go to Jesus. It was full of people, so they dropped him through the roof. And when Jesus saw them, he said to the man who was sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Can you imagine what it would be to hear from the very Son of God that your sins are forgiven? But God gave something there that would comfort any heart today, if you understand rightly God's word. Because in Mark 2, 5, it says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. So that if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you can have that certainty that Jesus would say to you, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Because they are forgiven when a soul truly believes. That is scripture. That is Christ. The lady who anointed Jesus. Remember Jesus went to that dinner at the Pharisee's house. This woman who was known as a sinner. She wanted to see Jesus. She came and she began to weep at his feet. It was so many tears that it began to wash his feet. She wiped his feet with her hairs, with the hairs of her head. She kissed Jesus' feet and then anointed them with ointment. And after Jesus rebuked the Pharisee for judging him for allowing that woman to touch him and then praising the woman for her love to him, 
he said to the woman, Thy sins are forgiven. And he did the same thing in that event. What what caused him to say, Your sins are forgiven? Well, Jesus said further to the lady, He said, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Again, that comfort of forgiveness came through the assurance of that faith. So we know from Scripture that if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you are one who looks for Him. And if you are one who looks for Him, you have reason to believe that Jesus bore your sins. If you don't look for Him, then you don't have that certainty. In the sacrificial system... And then I'll end with just a couple thoughts now. In the sacrificial system, it wasn't an automatic thing. I'm speaking of Christ bearing sins, and because He bore them, sins went away. But that's not an automatic thing for every human being. There's always faith and repentance connected. In the sacrificial system... Um, There were the individual offerings of a family. There were the offerings of the priests. And then there were the feast offerings that were multiple. There was that Day of Atonement offering that we spoke of last time. Those two goats. One that was offered on the altar. One that went into the wilderness. And, And in all of those offerings, it was not an automatic thing. And what what shows this dynamic is in the Day of Atonement, there was an order. That that was the only day where fasting was an ordination. It was the only ordered day of fasting in all of Israel. They were people who fasted often, but in terms of the law, there was only one day that they were commanded to fast, to afflict their souls. It was the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, 31, it says, It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And by affliction, it meant, of course, to to be contrite for their sins, to feel the sadness that because of their sins, they offended God. And so they would fast to to be, in in a sense, just thinking of the humiliation of their sins. It was a day of contrition. It was a day of asking forgiveness. That day would end with great joy and rejoicing when they would receive the man coming back from the wilderness saying, I don't see the goat anymore. But before that joy, they needed to repent. They needed to confess their sins. And in Leviticus 23, 29, it says this regarding the soul who would refuse to afflict himself. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. See, God was explaining very clearly, I'm making this provision for my people. But if you despise it, if you don't believe, if in the day that you are to confess your sins and feel the affliction of having offended me, an everlasting holy God who's provided you with everything, well, then you will be cut off and you will not be forgiven. The sins will have gone away for my people, but for you, your sins will be upon you. That's what God was communicating. So that those who do not believe in Jesus... The only certainty they have is that their sins are upon themselves. 
And in terms of how God relates to you, that's how we should see it. Because you're still guilty for those sins in the sight of God. You're still seen as the one who committed them and as the one who should pay for them. And if you die with that reality, that is exactly what will happen. You will appear before the bar of God. And this is, this is what Paul brings, well, the author of, of Hebrews, maybe Paul, this is what he brings to us, the very reality of life and death, the reality of judgment. Look at verse 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. What, what God is bringing in His Word here is really the most important thing that matters to know. What comes after death? Is it oblivion? No. God's Word makes it clear. There is more after death. And there is judgment. And the last place you want to be is in judgment with your sins upon you. Beloved, that is the most deadly. It is the most terrifying. It it is the greatest place of wrath to be found if your sins are upon you before that holy tribunal, the judgment seat of God. Without a mediator, without a sin bearer, you will be the sin bearer. And this is why, beloved, Paul would write things like this. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's 2 Corinthians 5.11. And then in that same context, verse 20, he says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. You see what Paul was saying? He's saying, I know these realities. I know there's hell and I know there's judgment. And if your sins are upon you, you'll be before God. I know those tares. So I persuade you and I, and I plead with you that you would then be reconciled with God. That not a single soul from among us, from our friends, from our neighbors, how could we bear it, beloved? These are the days that we should be persuading, that we should be pleading, that we should be confronting them with love. Look what he says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. That's what a Christian is in this world, an ambassador for Christ, not just the preachers, but you to your friends and to your neighbors. When you plead with them that they would believe in Jesus, it is God beseeching through you. But if you never open your lips, there's no beseeching, there's no pleading. So we need to plead. And this is what I'm doing right now. I'm commanded to do this. That through me, God could beseech to your heart, if you are still without faith and repentance, that you would turn to Jesus, that you would fly to Jesus, that you would see Him as the only sin bearer that is 
possible. This is what we're about to do as we come to the table. See, our hearts are longing for Jesus. And we want to see something of Jesus. So we will see something of His suffering in the bread and something of His shedding of blood in the wine. And and, and our hearts are full of joy that He is giving Himself to us in these symbols so that we can see something of Jesus and, and experiencing Jesus and seeing He bore our sins. And I pray that even even if you're not able to come to this Lord's Supper because you've never professed maybe the faith in Christ and, and you're not certain if you are saved or not and so you feel perhaps you shouldn't come, my pleading is that the very Lord's Supper along with this message would be wooing you to Christ to come, to come to Him. Profess your faith in Him. You need Him. Trust in Him. John eight twenty four. Look at this promise that Jesus gave. If you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins because they will be upon you. But then earlier in John 8, 6, 47, He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Faith in the Lord Jesus. And you will receive this inheritance. The testator has died already. It is already in effect. But you and I must believe. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee for having sent Thy Son We thank Thee, Lord Jesus, for not having shied away even from the death on the cross where all our sins were placed upon Thee. And Thou didst suffer because of them in our behalf. And especially in the suffering of receiving the wrath of the Father. That's where the judgment was met and that where sins were paid so that they can truly be gone from our record. We thank Thee, Lord, for the blessed gift of forgiveness. And we pray that Thou would help us as we focus now upon um, the bread and the wine and that we would partake, Lord, with our hearts heavenward as we are reminded time and again from the form. Lord, we pray that our minds would not cling to to the earthly form themselves, but that the earthly symbols of bread and wine would lift our hearts to the body and blood of Christ, and that then spiritually and by faith we may partake of Thee, Lord Jesus, that we may truly be those who look for Christ. And we pray that Thou, Lord, would reveal Thyself to us through Thy Word and through the sacrament that Thou would bless this Lord's Supper. We pray that Thou would give guidance, Lord, and even as we sing our hymns of praise and gratitude, that Thou, Lord, would be the one who is worshipped and glorified. We ask all these things in the forgiveness of all our sins. Amen.